0: In April, 2020, John and Katie Palmer went on a walk in their neighborhood. What happened next has put John on a course of healing, advocacy, and most importantly, justice for his wife, Katie Palmer. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to a special Crime Lines bonus episode. I know I usually do these with other podcasters, but this week I'm opening up my platform for a family story and a call to action. I will say that when I do work with families on episodes, one of the hardest things about it is me asking them to relive their trauma. In some cases, they find telling me their story cathartic But in some cases, it's reliving their trauma for the 14th time to a media person they have never met before. And it is the last thing they want to do, but it's something they feel they need to do in order to get their story out there. Everyone wants their own sound clips and their own original interviews. For me, I tried to make it as easy on the families as possible and use interviews they've done prior to get the basics down, and then I only talk to them about specific points I still have questions on. There are times that I have done text or email interviews just to take that added pressure off of the family. Now, John Palmer, the husband of Katie Palmer, he was more than willing to talk. So I will cover the basics of the case myself, but you will hear clips from our interview woven in because he can explain the legal side from his firsthand experience better than I can. There are two amazing podcasts out there if you want to hear more on this case, particularly more of interviews with John, and those are True Consequences and Gone Cold. So this case takes place north of Dallas in Denison, Texas. Katie Palmer had grown up there. So when she and John were ready to settle down and raise their own children, they chose a quiet neighborhood in this quiet and family oriented community. The houses in their neighborhood are all on large lots in an area where not much passes by other than wildlife, which was perfect for Katie. She loved nature and conservation earning a BA in biology in 2003. She had interned for rainforest projects in Costa Rica before she went into education. She wanted to pass her love of science on to the next generation, and she chose to teach middle school. For those not in the United States, middle school here is generally ages 11 to 14, so pretty much the worst ages of human development. But if you know someone who loves teaching that age range, then you know how much they love it because you have to love it to survive it. And Katie loved it, and she went above and beyond. She was Teacher of the Year three times at the middle school where she taught. She was Rookie Teacher of the Year when she got started out, and that's only among other recognitions and awards. She specialized not just in biology, but also in robotics and STEM programs in general. The love for nature, conservation, and science was also passed on to her own two children. On Tuesday, April 21st, 2020, Katie and her husband John went out for a morning walk. Katie was on the fence about going initially. This was early in the pandemic, so Katie was teaching virtually. That meant she often had a little bit more time to sleep in the morning since she didn't have to drive to work. But there were killdeer nesting in their neighborhood. Killdeer are small birds that nest on the ground, and Katie really couldn't resist a nature sighting. They checked to see if their son wanted to go with them, but he was happy in bed, which turned out to be fortunate with what came next. Katie and John left the house around 7.30. Their neighborhood is like a lot of these more country-like residential areas. There are no sidewalks or curbs. It usually didn't really matter much because this wasn't exactly a thoroughfare. The two started heading back towards their house. They were facing traffic as they walked, which is how you're supposed to walk when there are no sidewalks. They were about a fifth of a mile from their home when they were struck from behind by someone driving a Ford F-250 pickup truck. John said they didn't hear anything coming, so they didn't have time to turn around, move over onto the grass, or anything like that. They were both hit so hard that they were literally knocked out of their shoes, landing on the pavement 70 feet away. John remained conscious, which seems like a miracle, but he was in a lot of pain. He looked around for Katie and saw her lying on the ground. She wasn't talking, but he did hear her groan. He couldn't get up due to his own injuries, so he crawled slash dragged himself towards her while he also yelled for help. He saw that Katie was still breathing with difficulty and her eyes were open, but she wasn't responding to anything. He knew it couldn't be good that she was just staring. The driver of the vehicle that hit them stopped and he ran out of his truck. He apologized and then dialed 911. It was Corey Todd Foster, who was a neighbor of theirs. First responders arrived on the scene and attended to both John and Katie, putting John in an ambulance as he heard them talking about life-flighting Katie to a larger hospital. Because the police had body cams, we do have a record of some of the conversations happening between the police and with EMS. They said that Katie was critical with a head injury and that her pupils were not reacting. That is a sign of severe brain damage, and it's a very bad sign as far as a prognosis goes. Corporal al Alkatib with the Texas Department of Public Safety arrived around 8:15 a.m., which is about the same time as Life Flight. Al-Khatib would be in charge of the investigation as it went forward. al checked in with John, who was in the ambulance, then Katie as she was being prepared for transport, and then he went over to Corey Foster and asked what happened. The body cam footage has been released, and it is intelligible, but because of the life flight helicopter nearby, the recording picked up that sound too making it uncomfortable to listen to on a podcast if you use earbuds like I do. So rather than play it, I'm just going to sum up Corey's story. Corey said he was leaving his house to go pick up some of his work crew. His windshield was fogged over, and as he drove, he was trying to clear it. Between the fog and the early morning glare from the sun, he couldn't see and he admitted he shouldn't have been driving. He said he actually thought he hit a telephone pole because he didn't see Katie or John at all. According to al he could smell alcohol on Corey and asked him how much he had to drink. Corey said he didn't drink anything that morning, but he had the night before, stopping around 7 p.m., Corey's story would change, pushing the time out to eight or maybe even nine before he stopped drinking. He did pass a brief field sobriety test, and then al had him do a breathalyzer, which hit a .06, an hour after the collision. In Texas, for the record, .08 is the legal limit for driving. This is John.
1: Corporal Alkateeb gave Foster a breathalyzer, and it was at a .06. An hour later, he chose not to get a blood test. Even when asked by other troopers if he was going to get blood, he he declined. Now, you and I both know that if you're a .06 an hour after you kill somebody, you're probably going to be very close, if not over, to a .08 at the time of impact. Al for reasons only known to him, decided that uh, this was not enough to uh, take Corey Foster to a hospital to get a blood test, but instead to load him up in his DPS vehicle and drive him home.
0: You may think that a .06 sounds high for someone who said he stopped drinking 13 hours before. And you would be Right. While everyone's body works a bit differently and I cannot account for everything, it's safe to estimate that blood alcohol goes down 0.015 per hour after you stop drinking. To be at 0.06 13 hours later, he would have been a 0.255 the night before, and 0.255 is drunk. Many people will black out or even pass out at this level. Though Corey said he had four or five drinks the night before, this number puts us more in the 8 to 10 range, depending on Corey's size. And that's if the .06 was even accurate. So let's talk about breathalyzers. They are obviously not measuring blood alcohol content since it's not testing the blood. It measures what is on the breath, and it is essentially an estimate. Controlled studies have shown they can have up to a 50% error. So a 0.06 is close enough to a 0.08 that if we accept the margin of error, a lot of officers would then order a blood test, particularly when they can actually smell alcohol on the suspect's breath and since the breathalyzer was done an hour after the crash we really need to add 0.015 to that number and we get 0.075 which is nearly the legal limit but corporal alkatib opted not to order a blood test and he did this even though there were two other dps officers at the scene and one even asked about the blood test and corporal alkatib said no they were not going to do it One of those other troopers was wearing a body cam. It was not initially included in the report Al-Khatib sent to the DA, and the family had to request it themselves. After it was released some 18 months after the collision, the family learned more about what happened at the scene. This is Corporal Al-Khatib talking to the other DPS officers. I am going to play it now. The only thing I edited out was in the middle, someone honked a horn, and I clipped that for the safety of your ears.
1: But right when I walked, come up, and I saw it was him, I was like, he's probably drunk." he said the same thing. He said that, he's always he goes,
0: that dude's always drunk. In case you can't understand that clearly, it is Al-Khatib saying that as soon as he saw Corey Foster, he assumed he was probably drunk. The other officer said that he spoke with another neighbor who said exactly the same thing. That dude's always drunk. So here is even more probable cause to do a blood test. We have a witness and the lead investigator having prior knowledge of Corey Foster's long-running issues with alcohol. Just to remind you, this happened before eight in the morning and two people's knee-jerk reactions or that Corey Foster was probably already drunk. But there is something else on this body cam footage that caught John's attention pretty much immediately. In the initial body cam footage that they had already seen, Corporal al told his supervisor that he knew of Corey Foster because his wife worked with Corey's wife. But in this new body cam footage, al speaking with other DPS officers, pointed out Corey's house, mentioned he had just recently moved there, and said what Corey did for work. And that sounded like he knew Corey Foster a little bit more than just knowing of him. Katie's family later found out that there are pictures of Tarif Al-Khatib and Corey Foster at Halloween and Christmas parties together just months before this incident. Since Corporal al knew Corey Foster, the suspect, he could have turned over the lead on this to either one of the other two DPS officers who were at the scene, and he chose not to. Maybe he didn't see that what is at least a casual acquaintance, if not an actual friendship, with the suspect would prevent him from doing his job though it seems a little harder to argue that when he didn't order a blood test under a situation where a blood test would have been the next logical step. And like I said, this body cam footage was not submitted to the Grayson County DA. This footage that shows how well al Qatib knew Corey and where they're discussing the probability that he was drunk This part only came out because John Palmer requested it down the road when he found out that the other DPS officers at the scene had a body cam. Regardless of the investigative shortfalls that began almost immediately, al did write in his report that there was negligence on Corey's part. He had been driving when he couldn't see out of his window. He crossed to the wrong side of the road and he struck two people. He did recommend charges be laid. It's just too bad he didn't do enough of an investigation to make them stick. Meanwhile, John was taken to a local hospital while Katie was taken to a trauma center in Plano. John was severely injured. He had a broken back. But Katie's injuries, particularly the head trauma, was too much to survive. She was pronounced dead less than two weeks before her 39th birthday. John was released from the hospital, and he and Katie's family worked to have him heal physically and then help their two kids and the rest of the family through their grief. And they waited to hear what was happening on the legal side. After hearing absolutely nothing for a while, John called the Grayson County DA, Brett Smith, to find out what was going on. John was told that the file had not made it to the DA's office yet, but they would look at it as soon as it did, and then they would reach out. But then weeks went by with no word. Meanwhile, Corey Foster was still driving through the neighborhood, right past John and Katie's house, in the same truck he hit them with. I don't know that the mental toll of this can be put into words. After not getting updates from the DA, Katie's mother, Rhonda, found Brett Smith's cell phone number on Facebook. I do want to emphasize that it was publicly posted. It's not like she used covert means to get it. When Rhonda called Smith, he didn't seem to know what case she was talking about. And in Rhonda's view, he seemed to care more about her calling him on his private cell phone which I'm not sure why he thought she should have known it was private when it was on Facebook for anyone to find. The family was upset about this interaction on the phone and vented about it again on Facebook. Others reading it were outraged, and they started contacting the DA. Finally, John got a call back. John told me that the call was more about the impact of their social media posting than it was about Katie's case. So John felt he had to tell people to stop calling because he believed that having an adversarial relationship with the DA's office was not going to get them justice. The DA continued to complain about how he was being painted on social media, even after John asked people to back off. This, in John's view, may have permanently altered the way the Grayson County DA's office interacted with the family.
1: I believe that the Grayson County District Attorney's office and District Attorney Brett Smith took quite an exception to us by being vocal, by asking questions, and by demanding justice. And I don't believe that they're used to the amount of advocacy that we have shown towards Katie. And I believe that they took that as us questioning their authority and they're not used to it. And as a result, we were treated as we were the criminals and not the victims.
0: John said that there was another meeting where Smith basically said they're working on the case so the family could just go ahead and call off the jihad. And John said the tone was like it was a joke. But members of Katie's family were in that meeting. They had been grieving enough, and John felt comments like this were unprofessional, and it illustrated how the DA viewed this case. The case was assigned to Assistant District Attorney Carrie Ashmore. ADA Ashmore took the case to a grand jury and presented charges of manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. This was in August 2020, four months after Katie was killed. This grand jury only had 10 people rather than 12 for some reason that has not been explained. We do know that one of the regular jurors was sick and the other recused themselves, but it's not known why they did not bring in alternates. John asked and was told that the ADA didn't even know. So, why does this matter? It matters because grand juries don't have to be unanimous, they need nine votes. So, yes, having 10 people versus having 12 makes a difference, and it can be the difference between an indictment being secured or not. So I will say it surprised me that ADA Ashmore was not more concerned about this. The grand jury heard three hours of testimony, and they deliberated for one hour. With the case as it was presented, the grand jury declined to indict Corey Foster, But not all of the evidence was presented. For instance, the body cam footage we discussed earlier of Al-Khatib discussing the case at the scene with other troopers was not included. That's where they discussed how Corey Foster smelled of alcohol, had a reputation for being drunk frequently, and they even had a discussion of the speed Corey was driving. Corey claimed he was going 15, and one of the troopers said, B.S., he had to have been going more like 50. Here is John talking a little bit more about the grand jury.
1: Come to find out that there was a report that was completed by a third party. So DPS did not recreate this crash and still do not know why. That's one of their sole jobs is to investigate and um, to come up with the information to provide to prosecutors. Uh, They absolutely failed at that. So Grayson County hired a third party to recreate this crash. The grand jury was on the 19th. This report did not get finalized until the 25th. So the grand jury did not have this completed finalized report, which was very damning towards Corey Foster. In addition the phone records were never requested by the Grayson County District Attorney's Office and also not presented to this first grand jury. So I was able to testify. Tariff Al who who is the investigating officer that day, family friend of Corey Foster, uh, testified. And somebody that was with this third party that recreated the crash uh, were able to testify this grand jury came back and basically stated that there was enough evidence to proceed forward with the cr- criminal case, which still very perplexing to me.
0: John mentioned the third-party reconstruction, which confirmed Corey Foster had to have been going well over the speed limit. It also found there were no signs of a sudden stop. So even after hitting two people... Corey rolled to a gradual stop rather than slamming on his brakes, which sounds to me like his response time was impaired. Now that blood alcohol test would be really good to have right now. You also heard John mention Corey Foster's cell phone records. We've talked in other cases about how families will file civil suits not just to get civil damages, but to force information to be released. As part of the civil suit they filed against Corey Foster, the family was able to get his cell phone records, which showed at the time of the collision, he was using his phone. So in addition to his foggy windshield, which he claimed he was trying to clear, the glare of the sun and the approximate 0.06 blood alcohol level Corey Foster was using his phone. The family then pushed for this new information to be presented to a new grand jury.
1: I get a call at 4.30, I believe it was like a Monday, from Carrie Ashmore stating that um, they were going to present the phone records to a second grand jury. I asked if I should be there. I should testify. This is a brand new grand jury. This is not the the original grand jury. Again, roughly eighteen months has passed, and he said no. They were going to present the phone records, and if the grand jury wanted any other evidence, they would provide that to them for their review. And the phone call got ended. It was a very abrupt phone call. I got to thinking about that. That just did not seem right. So I called back. He wouldn't take my calls. He would only converse with me uh, through through text messages. So I basically asked him if this whole case was going to be represented to the second grand jury who had no clue about the case. Um, I wanted to be able to testify in front of this grand jury. I wanted the uh, report that the first grand jury didn't see to be shown. I wanted the body camera footage to be shown. I wanted it to be a full presentation, uh, not just half a presentation like they did the first time. And Kerry Ashmore basically told me that um, they were going to review the phone records. And again, any items that they asked for that they would provide. At which point, again, this is all being conveyed through text messages. I requested that they not move forward with a second grand jury unless this case is going to be represented. Because what I didn't want was to have just, again, half the evidence presented at a second grand jury. And the grand jury not know what the first grand jury was, was told. He would not return any more text messages. I called the district attorney's office roughly 6 a.m. the next morning and stated that um, Rhonda Nail, who's Katie's mother, and I would be there at about 7.30, 7.45 to speak with them before um, they, they acted. We showed up. We requested to speak to Kerry and Brett. They would not meet with us. We saw the grand jurors file in about an hour and a half, two hours after the grand jurors filed in. I don't know how many cases were heard before ours, but Kerry Ashmore came out and said, um, it's in the grand jury's hands. We started to question him, like, you know, why would you not let us testify? Why did you rush this? What what were they shown? And he ended the conversation by looking at Katie's mother and telling her that... um, He didn't have to explain himself to her, and he was damn good at his job, and he left. Comes back 30 minutes later and uh, says that the grand jury decided not to move forward. And so that's the second time that the Grayson County District Attorney's Office, under the leadership of Brett Smith, uh, failed our family.
0: It's confusing to me why they would only present new evidence to a new grand jury and not the entire case. Saying that they'll give more if the grand jurors asked for it doesn't make a lot of sense. They don't know what they don't know, so why would they ask about evidence they didn't have presented to them? As you can imagine and probably can hear in John's voice, Katie's family has been beyond frustrated with the way this entire case has been handled. And the more they look into it, the worse it gets. From their point of view, it looked like Corey Foster was being protected. It started with Al-Khatib, who admitted to knowing Corey well enough to know where he lived when he moved there, that he was always drunk and what he did for a living. So did that explain why he did not order a blood alcohol test? Did it explain why he did not check Corey's cell phone records? And that info didn't come out until the family pushed the issue. Is that why the possible speeding and the reckless driving were not included in Al-Khatib's report? He mentioned these things at the scene. We saw it on the body cam footage that he did not include in the file. Now, we have to consider what is known as Hanlon's razor. It is basically never a tribute to malice, that which is adequately explained by incompetence. But Corporal al has shown himself to be a competent and thorough investigator in other cases, so I don't know that Hanlon's razor really applies here. A year and a half after Katie's death, 18-year-old Kiana Murray's car was hit from behind by a truck driven by a man named Christopher Brian Miller. Her vehicle was pushed into traffic where it was struck by another vehicle, and she died in the crash. Tarif al was one of the investigating officers, and he spent two months investigating. Eventually, Miller was charged with criminally negligent homicide after the investigation found that Miller was watching a video on his cell phone while he was also speeding. So we know he knows how to investigate a scene and check cell phones. So why did that not happen with Corey Foster. The inadequacies in the investigation into Katie Palmer's death did lead to advocacy by John Palmer and Katie's mother, Rhonda. They joined with the family of a young man named Colton Carney to push for a bill that will make testing blood alcohol levels in situations like these not optional. Colton Kearney was a 24-year-old who was hit and killed while walking to work. After the collision, Colton was tested for substances. The driver, however, was not. Colton's mother learned there was no law requiring this, and she set out to change it.
1: We saw this bill. We read it. We saw the spirit of the bill and immediately um, asked her what we can do to help through our family, through our community and our support, again, accompanied with the Kearney family, we were able to get this bill passed through the Texas House and Texas Senate um, within one session, which is a very daunting task. But it was a grassroots movement and um, I was very blessed to meet the Kearneys and even more blessed and uh, more overjoyed that our elected officials saw this bill and saw that it was just, just a common sense bill. How this hasn't been a law already, I, I, I don't know. But what this will do is it will help. This is obviously not going to stop drunk driving. It's not, or impaired driving. It's not, but it'll hold those that do accountable. And it will leave families like mine with answers and not more questions.
0: It is now law in Texas that if someone hits a pedestrian with their car, leading to serious injury or death, they will be tested for substances. Officers at the scene, whether they know the driver or not, will no longer make the call whether to test or try to figure out if they have enough probable cause. Colton's law was supported by victim advocacy groups, including Mothers Against Drunk Driving, though it was opposed by those who tend to oppose any erosion of rights or due process. And I bring the opposition up because I found it interesting that one of the people who opposed the law said that this law shouldn't have been needed in Katie Palmer's case anyway. He essentially said Corey Foster should have been tested, even under the old law. And this was a failure on the part of Corporal al Grayson County has about 133,000 people. There are bound to be times when law enforcement knows a suspect, or even the DA does. The Palmer family found out that prior to becoming a DA, Brett Smith had been an attorney for the Fosters, on a DWI case. It's bound to happen occasionally, but there were two other officers at that scene who did not know Corey Foster. Either one of them could have taken it over, one of them who expressed the need for a blood alcohol test. How differently would this case have gone if that happened? Would it have been on the family to request the extra body cam footage and the cell phone records, or would that have already been done? Katie Palmer's family wants people to be held accountable, both for their roles in Katie's death and their roles in not proceeding with this case. And for that to happen, they need the whole case to be presented to the grand jury, not two grand juries each getting half of the case. They want one grand jury to hear that Corey Foster was driving at a high rate of speed while on the phone while trying to clear his windshield, while having an estimated blood alcohol level of 0.06, and having a clearly delayed reaction time, so much that he didn't slam on his brakes when he hit two people. How could a grand jury who heard the totality of the circumstances not come back with any charge at all? Now, in Texas, manslaughter is defined as recklessly causing the death of an individual. And criminally negligent homicide is when a person causes the death of an individual by criminal negligence. So then we have to define criminal negligence. In Texas, criminal negligence is when someone should be aware of a substantial and unjustifiable risk surrounding their behaviors, yet does it anyway. So let's go ahead and throw out the unknown of the blood alcohol content. Let's say Corey Foster was completely sober when he sped through a residential neighborhood that had no sidewalks, while he drove on the wrong side of the road, while he couldn't see out of his windshield, while he was also using his phone. And then go ahead and let me know if you can figure out what part of that isn't a substantial and unjustifiable risk. So as I talked to John, I asked him, what's the call to action here? And it is a big one. He wants the DA, Brett Smith, out of office and a new DA brought in. District attorneys are elected officials, and I guarantee John Palmer will have plenty on social media about supporting any opponent to Brett Smith. They want someone without any connections to Corey Foster or his family, someone who hasn't expressed discomfort with how the family has used social media. They want a new DA to look at this case and consider it on the whole. And this wouldn't be the first case that we've seen where a DA passes on a case and a new one picks it up down the road. And while waiting on this complete case to be presented to a grand jury, John Palmer has a civil suit against Corey Foster coming to trial soon. And maybe that process will get them closer to their goal of having this case fully investigated and prosecuted. Who knows what new information will come out, as everyone has to sit down for depositions.
1: We are set for trial this October, so if there is any additional information that is provided, we will definitely present that to the Grayson County District Attorney's Office again, and uh, look for other avenues, if there are any, to have this case moved outside this jurisdiction, outside this this county.
0: The family has been fighting for justice for Katie, while also trying to hold those who failed her responsible.
1: Currently, we are fighting to have Corporal Tarif Al-Khatib, who is the investigating officer on scene, fighting to have him held accountable for what he did and didn't do. April 21st, 2020, we've actually got a meeting this Thursday with the chief of the Texas Highway Patrol. DPS has been circling their wagons around Tarif. They won't formally reprimand him or they have not yet, Uh, but they did say that they found quote unquote shortcomings in his actions and have not fully released what those shortcomings are and what corrective actions have been taken. Um, I believe that Corporal al absolutely failed us that day and failed Katie. And in doing so contributed to Corey Foster walking free, never being held accountable for his reckless actions that resulted in the death of Katie Palmer. I can make this promise that we are not going to stop. We are going to hold DPS accountable until they hold al accountable. We are going to do everything we can to bring Corey Foster back to a criminal court, and we're going to make sure that Brett Smith is not reelected as district attorney of Grayson County.
0: John has had to fight for justice, work towards advocacy, physically heal, grieve, and raise his children as a single parent through all of this. But it doesn't sound like not fighting was ever an option.
1: I had such a strong connection and love for Katie. Such a strong connection that I don't want some somebody else to be in my position. There's nothing that I can do that can bring her back. There is nothing. But I want to make sure, again, I want to make sure that somebody else and somebody else's family doesn't have to go through what we've continued to endure for over two years, almost two and a half years.
0: If you want to learn more about this case, stay up to date on what is happening and find out ways you can help. I will leave links in the show notes to where you can follow John Palmer and the Justice for Katie movement all over social media. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.